All right, folks, I am joined today by Santiago Roel Santos. This is not a one-time thing. I am thrilled to announce that Santiago is joining as the new co-host of Empire. Um, we're going to do something special. So we're going to actually add an episode every single week to Empire. Thursdays, per usual, you'll get the episode with a guest, Santiago. We're lucky enough to have him joining us for those episodes as well. We've got some amazing guests coming up. Uh, Kyle Samani from Multicoin, Bill Tai, pretty famous uh, venture investor, uh, the founders of Avalanche are coming on, Gabby from uh, YGG, and some other really, really big names that we can't share yet. Uh, and then on Friday mornings, um, around probably 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. Eastern, we're going to have a weekly roundup. And the weekly roundup, the the kind of breakdown of these shows is just going to be like narrative watch. What are the big narratives we're seeing uh, every single day in the industry? Top stories. What are the big news stories? And like, what, how do we actually take them and go one, one layer deeper uh, than what kind of the, the topical news announcements will show you? And then the last thing is just breaking down some of the top tweets uh, that you might see on Twitter every day. And uh, Santiago has a really good behind the scenes look at what's really going on. And so just kind of explaining maybe what's uh, a couple layers deeper on, on the tweets as well. So Santiago, uh, I will call you my captivating co-host today. Thrilled to have you. Um, welcome to the show, my friend. Hello, hello, GM. Uh, it's great to be here, Jason. GM, GM. GM. <laughs> we need some good like GM merch here. That's that's Absolutely. what's coming next. So yes. Santiago, I think it'd be helpful before jumping in. Can you just give a little background on yourself and like your background in crypto and where you come from and all that kind of good stuff? Uh, yeah, without boring our users, um, I got involved in crypto in 2012. Uh, I was at JP Morgan at the time, and really, uh, I'd studied game theory, and so for me, it was just fascinating. Like, there's this idea that you can have a system that doesn't rely on trust, and then you can do so many things around that. And I've been like obsessed as an investor of of removing friction. Like, when in our daily interactions, I think you and I can, and everyone really can sympathize. Like, they're just things that like you're left wondering. There ought to be a better way of doing X or Y. And invariably, I always keep coming back to crypto because I think that it is inherently such a powerful technology that will allow us to do things just faster, better, and cheaper. Um, and and I think I've always come back to that thought. And to me, it's been super captivating. Uh, and sometimes, look, I've made a lot of mistakes uh, as an investor. Um, it's not it's hard not to get super excited. And in like you know 2017, narratives tend to sometimes talk about narratives in this show a lot. Narratives sometimes tend to get ahead of fundamentals. And so, as an investor, it's important to come back to okay, what is what is actually going on in the space? And I hope that in this podcast, we can marry the, those two, right? I mean, we talk a lot about narratives, but we'll also talk about what's actually going on behind the scenes to give people an understanding of what is that gap between narratives and actual fundamentals and traction. And hopefully, hopefully we can keep each other accountable here because there is a lot of really, I don't think that in, <clears throat> in my time in crypto, um, and you know, most recently I was at Parify, I was investing just in DeFi. Now I'm just, you know, an angel investor, institutional angel investor, I guess. Uh, but I'd like to get really involved with projects. And so hopefully from that vantage point, we can keep uh, some good you know, insights around what's actually going on in the industry and, and what are the narratives that are kind of evolving. Amazing. Amazing. So let's jump in. Um, okay. One of the big narratives that uh, folks have been talking about for the last several months is just the layer one wars. Um, and I know you don't really see them as a, as a war. And it's not like, uh, I know, I know you really don't see them as like these ETH killers per se. Um, you know, last, last week there was a lot of talk around like Suzu and, and Kane and, and we, we don't have to get into that too much. But one, one thing that's starting to be pretty apparent is that it's tough to kill the king, right? And with, uh, these smart contract platforms, ETH remains the king. Right now you're seeing ETH BTC starting to make uh, potentially some new highs, definitely new highs in this cycle. Uh, it's now the highest it's been in around three and a half years. Um, so how do you view this? How do you view like these L1 wars right now? How do you view ETH BTC starting to make new highs? What's your take on this? Yeah, let's start with the most important, I think, which is the ETH BTC ratio. It's something that a lot of market participants watch and uh, most people probably are in tune with that. And it is making a very interesting, look, I'm not a chartist, but it is making an interesting kind of breakout, if you will. And, and it, it goes back to this idea, can, can Ethereum as a network flip in Bitcoin? And I think, uh, you know, <clears throat> obviously this puts that discussion front and center. So it's super interesting to watch. Um, and, and I think, look, momentum is important in, in this space. I get it. Uh, but I think there is, in my mind, like Ethereum's already flipped Bitcoin because it has so much more activity 
going on on top of it. But, you know, that's for a separate conversation. But it is a very interesting kind of ratio that a lot of market participants are following. Um, the other, the, you know, the other L1s, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the discussion is around can competing smart contract platforms supplant Ethereum? And, you, you know, in that discussion, you have Solana, you have Polkadot, and you have Cosmos and Avalanche. And, and I think, you know, it, it's, um, as you said, you know, it's, it's really, I think, uh, it, it lacks imagination because ultimately all of these different blockchains are going to be catering to different use cases. And so I would almost argue that, you know, the success of Solana is probably net-net marginally beneficial to Ethereum um, and vice versa. So tell me more about that. So you think the use case, so there's a couple different uh, kind of visions for the future of these L1s. One is that uh, it's a winner take all, right? You know, either ETH wins or Solana wins or Avalanche wins. Uh, another kind of common theory is that they all own a different use case, right? Maybe ETH is the warehousing mechanism for like really large contracts. Uh, maybe DeFi and finance gets built on top of Solana because of Serum and things like that. Maybe something else such as, you know, Luna takes something, Avalanche takes something else. What, what, what narrative makes the most sense to you right now? I mean, I sort of ascribe to the second one, which is I think there will be application-specific blockchains. Uh, you know, like Flow, for instance, is focusing on NFTs. Uh, Solana, I think, is seeing a lot of interesting activity on the social front and, and gaming side of things. Also, DeFi, just given the muscle of Alameda <clears throat> and uh, FTX and Serum. Um, but, you know, I, I, I sort of think that, um, you know, it's... And when I say it's net positive, meaning... so. So there's an interesting tweet by Jesse Walden, which is an investor at Variant this week, that said, look, probably, probably Solana's going to onboard more users over the next six to 12 months in Ethereum. And prove me wrong. And you know, I've known Jesse. I think Jesse and Varian as, as a whole have been like mostly investing in Ethereum. Uh, but I think like most funds and investors in this space, it's become harder and harder to overlook the activity that's going on in Solana. And okay, assuming that is the case, you're probably going to see a lot of users come to Solana, but are they going to stop there? Because they might, to your point, want to use a much more robust and certain applications of DeFi that only exist in Ethereum. And so there, I think, I think that's where ultimately this is net positive for, for both Ethereum and Solana. Um, I don't think it's a winner-take-all market. I think there's going to be a lot of bridges and connectivity between these blockchains. Um, but, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I think it's, I could appreciate the competing views that it is just winner-take-all, but... Yeah. That's yeah. I think, I mean, there's two frameworks that you always have to view these assets in, um, within. Uh, it's not just in like in traditional capital markets and traditional tech. It's uh, basically just users and customers, right? So if you're usually, if you're analyzing how well a company is doing, you'll look at how many customers they have or how much, how many users they have. In this, you obviously have to look at the investors because everything uh, is liquid. Uh, so you have to look at the users and the investors. And so when I think about the L1s, it's like, the user experience is so much better right now on something like Solana. It's just yeah. so much better uh, than Ethereum is. Uh, but also on the investor side, you know, investors are pretty quick to say, like, uh, to believe that they think that they missed the train on Bitcoin and ETH, which I completely disagree with. I just want to put that out there. But a lot of the kind of institutional crowd that we're speaking with, they're pushing farther out on the on the risk uh, spectrum into things like Avalanche, into things like Solana. Um we talked to a pension fund the other day that was thinking about buying Solana, which is just completely nutty to me. Um, but it's because yeah. they think they missed the ETH trade, right? Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I was in the I was in the Breakpoint conference in Lisbon, and and it was a panel on um, what happens if they're all time highs, and the question was like, what do people do? And I just, I just, I don't think it's an interesting question. I think like let's just let's just put it out there. Bitcoin is still in price discovery mode, and everything else falls. Like, so if you think you've missed the boat on Bitcoin. Then I mean I, I, hard, I find that hard to believe because Bitcoin as a, as a whole is, if you believe that it's going to actually be a non-sovereign store of value, then it is. There's plenty of upside from there. And look, none of this financial advice, but and and you know Ethereum as a whole as a smart contract platform is sort of like a val. It, it is attempting to be the value layer of the internet. And so when you think about how big the internet is and how much value gets transacted on top of the internet, it's far far greater than gold. If you put that into perspective then I think you invariably come to the conclusion that it is still very, very early. And I think a testament to that is how quickly these narratives evolve. I mean, six months ago or a year ago, when I was getting started at Parify, DeFi wasn't even a thing. 
now people moved on from DeFi. You know, DeFi is like you're a dinosaur if you still believe DeFi is going to be a thing, right? You you move on to NFTs and you move on to gaming, and then you know God knows what's next, right? But I think you know you almost wonder like what part of the adoption curve you're at, and I think invariably it is super super early uh, yeah. across the board. Yeah. I mean, fun story for the listeners is uh, Santiago approached us in February of 2020, uh, about, you know, maybe 20 months ago saying we want to host or I want to run a DeFi podcast. And Mike and him, uh, Mike and I basically looked at Santiago and said, uh, yeah, that's cute, my friend, but uh, nobody gives a crap about DeFi. The market is way too small and nobody wants to listen to a podcast about DeFi. So here we are. I know, I'm glad it only took 20 months uh, and you just being wildly right and us being wildly wrong. But yeah. 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 So let's, um, I think this is a good tie into the counter argument to Solana is that it's too centralized. Um, and that's what like a lot of the ETH folks say. I would just do want to point out that Bitcoin folks always said that ETH was too centralized. ETH folks say that Solana is too centralized. Solana folks are going to say that the next thing is too centralized. Um, but actually Scott Hickel had a really good tweet on this. So one thing I want to do with you, like I mentioned in the beginning, is go into some of these tweets that are said on Twitter and uh, just kind of break them down. I'm going to see if I can share my screen here. Um, so Scott Hickel is uh, one, uh, one of Blau's co-founders at Join Royal, um, which is doing like music NFTs. And he said, uh, you know, had this kind of narrative violation tweet, which is the point is not to, uh, what he said is the point is not to decentralize everything, right? The point is not to decentralize everything. Layer ones need to be decentralized to provide an uncensorable global shared database. Apps built on top of chains can and often should be centralized. So what he's saying is the layer one, Avalanche, Ethereum, Solana, uh, whatever else it might be needs to be decentralized, but the apps on top don't actually have to be centralized. Um, and this is kind of counter to what, what a lot of people think, especially with the, you know, everyone being so focused on DAOs right now. Um, what are your thoughts on Scott's tweet here? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think he's probably coming from a standpoint, which is users at the end of the day might not really appreciate decentralization. Um, and, I think your financial institution, for instance, if you're issuing a mortgage on chain, well, JP Morgan or Goldman or Wells Fargo is really, wanna, is really going to care about the chain being sufficiently decentralized and secure as a settlement. Now, you as a user might not necessarily care about, about that. You might just trust JP Morgan, and that's okay. I think it goes back to this idea, Jason, you were talking about, a sort of user aggregation. Like the end user might not even, might not even care or know that they're interacting with blockchains. It's just so that it just, the, the things that are, they just care about at the end of the day, the bottom line, which is it's faster, it's better, it's cheaper. And you ultimately make some sort of trade-off there, which is, I mean, there's always been a double standard in this space, right? We talk about decentralization, we talk, but most people still use centralized exchanges and still use custodial solutions, right? And so it is, it is I think, a tall order to assume that every user is going to be their own bank and manage their own keys. I think you always, it depends on the use case, right? And, and I think for a lot of times you are comfortable making that trade-off on that continuum of trust. Do you think users will even know what layer one they're using? No, not really. At, at mainstream, not at all. People not, I mean, when you swipe your credit card on Amazon, do you care what's going on in the back end? Do you even know what's going on in the back end? I don't know. Probably Stripe and Stripe is using, honestly, not, not just one quote unquote layer one cloud provider, like an AWS, they're probably using a combination of AWS, Google cloud uh, and something right. else. Right. Yeah, and do Azure. they care if you're, if you're running? Yeah, exactly. AWS or Azure or Google yeah. cloud or something. No, not really. Yeah. I, th I think that's where we'll go. Yeah. Next tweet I want to look at is uh, actually about DAOs. Um, for a while, Mike and I had been saying that uh, DAOs represent the next step forward in the labor uh, movement. And, this is uh, Lee Jin, incredibly smart over a vari variant fund, like you mentioned. Um, I'm just going to point this out and pull it up so that users can actually just go through and look at this tweet. But instead of walking through it, I just want to kind of get your take right now on specific to DAOs. Like right now, DAOs feel a little overhyped to me, I will admit. Um, it feels like anyone with a, a DAO is going to be able to raise a bunch of venture money and that this bull market might end with like a blow off top in DAOs or something like that. Um, and the way that I'm kind of viewing DAOs is honestly like they're a regulatory arbitrage 
for a lot of the existing companies. You look at companies like Shapeshift, uh, who are basically just turning into DAOs and all that is, is just a regulatory arbitrage. And, um, I know a lot of the labs behind a lot of the main DeFi protocols are thinking about transitioning into becoming a DAO. So what's the framework and kind of narrative that you're looking at, uh, when it comes to DAOs right now? I think two observations. One, I think at the end of the day, blockchains are coordination mechanisms. DAOs, I think, are really powerful coordination mechanisms of both financial and human capital. And the ability to share. So a lot of DAOs are being created around a shared objective, mission, value. It could even be a defined time frame. And I think that's quite powerful. I mean, I, I do ascribe to this view that DAOs probably are the new corporation in this sort of more fluid world that transcends local jurisdictions but is but instead relies on 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 smart contracts and program the programmability and reliability of a blockchain right that is tamper resistant and i think that gives you a lot of certainties if you're investing in an spv today well you're kind of relying on the manager and angelus and all this stuff to distribute stuff and you know to to make sure that they're doing the accounting right and all this stuff that totally goes away in a world of DAOs because everything is on chain. Everything is just perfectly transparent, auditable in real time. And you just you don't even rely on these people. You just say, look, if there's a liquidity event, you distribute to these people in this in this manner. But also it, it doesn't stop there, right? You could also have, you know, which is a more ambitious. That's probably the more simplistic DAO. The more ambitious one is like trying to like create an organization and like empower people in this chaotic like open like distributed world that i think is much much more challenging and i think a lot of DAOs today don't realize how difficult it is to coordinate human capital in a decentralized organization that is probably yeah, yeah. i don't think we'll i don't think we'll kind of solve that yet or at least i haven't seen anyone do that well and i and i'm a member of a number of DAOs, and it, it's super difficult yeah. Yeah. I think the main challenges, uh, you know, Lee Jin pointed these out pretty nicely. Uh, three main challenges. One is scaling. Uh, one is governance and one is balancing the interests of the capital providers, uh, with the active contributors. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think there's a good argument though that like DAOs do grow bigger, do get a lot bigger than some of the largest companies, right? You could see a world where there's a, DAO that's much larger than an Uber or Lyft or a Facebook or something like that, just because of how strongly they align, uh, the DAO members with the network's growth, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a, it's just a, you know, 95, 90, 95% alignment instead of something like, uh, maybe a Lyft or an Uber where there's like a 2% alignment with the users and the, and the company's success. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you look at, uh, gaming guilds and a few other DAOs that have been cropping up. I mean, I think ultimately just. The, the most powerful element I've thought of open source networks is that they're open to anyone to come in. It, no, no one really is checking your credentials or none of this nonsense. It's really, if you're an active contributor and people value that, your contributions, you are part of the DAO and you will be compensated. And I think that's, in the long run, social networks and traditional companies are going to struggle to retain talent for this reason, because why wouldn't you go to DAO? Right. right. Versus like being beholden to some sort of weird hierarchy and nonsense and, and unequitable distribution of value creation in some of these normal corporations. Right. So. I mean, look at what YGG is, uh, the Yield Guild DAO is doing. You know, it's basically mm -hmm. becoming just an on-ramp that brings more players into play-to-earn gaming. And it's it's lobbying game developers for better policies. Uh, it represents gamers actually in lawsuits. Uh, it can right. provide health benefits, uh, protections, PTO, mm -hmm. healthcare, uh, things that are completely infeasible if gamers are operating on their own. And Lee Jin, again, just pointing back to that thread, had a great, had some great points on this. So, yeah. But I, just to round this out discussion, it is, it is, you know, there is this sort of idea that a DAO for everything and people want to acquire things and it's just a party bid. Um, like, I just caution people when they're looking at that, like the Constitution DAO that we talked about the other time it was just unclear what you were actually owning. So it's just sort of important for people to actually realize like what, what constitutes ownership and governance of these DAOs. Like it's fine to like, I guess, band together and try to do something in a shared value. But some of these roles, responsibilities are very unclear. I completely agree. Um, I think one thing I'd like to, actually there's one, one other tweet, one other concept I want to talk to you about, which is um, just the, 
By the way, people are already starting picking up that everything in Twitter, ha- everything in crypto happens on Twitter because we will yeah. always go to tweets because that's where most, for anyone that's uninitiated in crypto, I always tell yes. them, if you're not on Twitter, you're like missing out on like 90% of the alpha. So, so yeah. we actually mandatory make all new employees get on Twitter. Um, and a <laughs> lot of people have this preconceived notion of like Twitter in 2012, which is, you know, it's something that like you go and post like your, your comment on like the recent sports game. And yeah. not understanding that there's a lot of good stuff that happens on Twitter. So it's pretty funny. Um, yeah. One thing that happened is Ross Ulbricht issued NFTs this week. Did you see this? Yes. Yes, we did. Maybe Were through you? a DAO, we might be looking to uh, be the highest bidder. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe. Possibly. Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Um, so... I want to hear your take on these NFTs. I want to hear your, t- it sounds like you probably will end up bidding on this. I want to hear why you're going to do it. If you're comfortable sharing that. And if you can share it, one thing that just pissed me off to my core though, is all of the Bitcoin maxis piling onto the tweet saying that, you know, basically disowning Ross because he was issuing these NFTs because it's not this, you know, Bitcoin maxi to its core. Ross Ulbricht has done more for the Bitcoin network than 10,000 of these people have who all joined in you know 2018 2019 2020 right and like it the people who did the most for this network were the people in the early days hal finney right Mm -hmm. people like ross Ulbricht, and i don't know it's just like i know i shouldn't get pissed off by it but i can't help i can't help but like think that these these bitcoin maxis are complete lunatics uh piling on and and kind of trying to Mm -hmm. disown ross Ulbricht. so yeah, I don't disagree here. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's obviously, un- I, I think that it's 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 an unfair kind of type of punishment that he's received. And, you know, he's ultimately, I think the bright side of all this is whether you believe in Ross or not, I think what is super powerful as a mega trend is NFTs being used as mechanisms to raise money for non like NGOs and organizations that are advocating for things. I mean, just for perspective, please read out just a DAO that I'm a part of. We a lot of the NFTs that we bought are have the artists or the foundations that we bought them from have decided to, you know, give it to charity or finance their own operations. And like, so we bought the Snowden NFT, and I think we gave the Freedom of the Press one or two or multiple years of operating runway, and they came to us and said it was it was, and to me, it's just really. Look, there's a lot of money that goes to charity, but unfortunately, somehow doesn't. There are certain people that don't get these or grants and all this stuff. People in academia, and so I think it's super powerful. I mean, just NFTs as mechanisms to, um, you know, to finance or to support causes that you believe in. So, but yeah, I, I think that for a while I felt that there's a certain contingency of these communities, especially in Bitcoin, that are just too extremist and just have taken a path that I don't, I don't, I don't see, what, <laughs> I don't agree with. Yeah. So you guys are thinking about bidding on the Ross Ulbricht NFTs? Um, yes. <laughs> wow. That's that's the <laughs> scoop of the day, Santer. I know I'd get one <laughs> scoop out of you. <laughs> yeah. No, we've got plenty of scoops, but yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Cool. Uh, any idea how much it'll cost? Um, 10 to 20 million. Can you tell me more about this? Like, is there a debt? So I don't know how much, like if you can share which DAO you're in and like what it is, but like, do, is everyone basically contributing the exact same amount of capital? Does everyone in the DAO, is there basically a capital call and everyone has to contribute the same amount? Like, how does this actually work? Um, yeah, it's taking a life of its own. So it started, Pleaser DAO started as, uh, we were bidding on UniB3 video by this great artist called People Pleaser. Um, and we're all kind of, the initial members were all kind of very in into DeFi and we just wanted a bit to get it. And so instead of outbidding each other, we banded together and we collectively bought it. And that really is transformed into what it is now. We've bought multiple assets. Um, we fractionalized one, which is the, the Doge meme. Uh, and that really kind of helped bootstrap our treasury. Um, and so, yeah, not every member contributes the same amount. We are very focused on onboarding a lot of artists um, that obviously in that in that instance, it's not... The, the, the focus there is not everyone contributes the same amount. It's really increasing the diversity and the collective kind of like brain power of this group. And the mission really is that I think trans, that is, I think, emblematic of a lot of the DAOs that are cropping up is we want to preserve and own pieces that capture the essence of Web3 and advocate for certain things like privacy and security and independence and freedom of the press. And I think that's 
from my vantage point, been super rewarding to be able to empower people like the Tor Foundation or Freedom of the Press around that. So in this case, I think we we only like to kind of bid on things that I guess we bought the Wu-Tang album from Martin Scarelli. So we kind of restored something that is pretty emblematic, I think. So that's been that's a Pleaser Dow 101. So one more question on Pleaser Dow and we'll move on. So let's say the thing's going to cost 20 million bucks. Is there do you have that in the treasury? Is there a capital call? Like, how do you make sure that like, like, let's say you have 5 million to contribute and someone else only has like three ETH. Like, how do you make sure, like, what's the benefit for you basically? Right. Yeah. So we, we all, I mean, I guess we, it's represented by these governance tokens that are owned by members. Uh, but we've, ra- we've sort of raised capital at different instances. We're not, uh, we're not raising at the moment, but uh, historically we have and and we have a balance sheet at the moment by which we will draw on to buy something like this but in the past it's been pretty chaotic sometimes we were bidding on like the snowden piece and we had to just raise money like in five minutes <laughs> and so it was like very chaotic as as every DAO really is chaotic yep, yep. last tweet of the week which i think was uh, my favorite one is uh, ryan watkins over at masari tweeted out we need a bear market uh and it was basically just a picture of the omicron token uh getting bid up to i think it was up 230 percent in the day uh 210 yeah. bucks uh which i think is just basically uh it honestly reminds me of like the the people uh the the constitution yeah. dow token just getting bid up by people who are like all right you know gm well, wait a minute gm, the, 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 GM, GM token. and shiba yeah. and doge and look Jason, you and I both reading or have read the book Wanting recently, and it talks about yeah. mimetic desire. And I think that in large part, you it just sort of puts, it is so, sometimes you, it takes something so ludicrous like that. And you say like, how is this possible that some of this stuff is worth billions of dollars? Like there's no value, right? It's not like gold that I can touch and feel it. And like, this is kind of the criticisms that you hear from old people. I just say, wait a minute. Everything in this world is a social construct. Even fiat money, Bitcoin, Ethereum, every other asset. So why, why all of a sudden do I give value to this pen? And why does this pen worth 10 times more than another pen? Well, because, you know, there's, there's just some sort of like, I want it. And so other people might see that and like, you'll, and, and might like that. And so I just think that it's, uh, this is the, this space really kind of flexes your thinking around. Yeah. Like, why do we give value to certain things? And is, is Omicron like, can some, the, the, the challenge I'll make is don't laugh at it. Just observe it because it's like human psychology. It's like super fascinating. And like something good might come out of that. Like Doge at one point, I mean, they have like huge war chest. And what's to stop Doge from actually moving a proof of stake and like building a network? Like it has a ton of community. And isn't that all, isn't all that's underpinning these blockchains? Like there's a coordination of social energy and a narrative that ultimately makes people want to expend energy to earn bitcoin like think about that back in the day i remember 2012 this is crazy and so like i don't know like i find these experiments obviously like it feels toppy it feels like you know this wouldn't happen in a bear market but also it's important to appreciate the 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 memes and the power of that and and how everything ultimately is like turtles all the way down don't bet against the meme baby um (laughs) Let's talk about the capital coming into the space. We'll start getting into the big news stories this week. Um, uh, just this week alone, uh, Borderless Capital launched a uh, $500 million Algorand focus fund. Uh, one That's inch, the city guy that no one knows about. And he just like is running this fund. Just by No, no, I think. No, no, no. There's another one. I think it's the city one. The city guy is this former wall, uh, city banker who launched a $1.5 billion crypto yeah. venture fund. Um and the venture fund is not focused on, you know, these like infrastructure plays. It's not investing in the fireboxes and the, the coppers and the blockfies of the world. It's investing in metaverse tokens, NFTs, yield staking, play to earn games. So you've got this city guy goes out and raises a billion and a half dollars and he's investing in metaverse NFTs, right? Yeah, yeah. What do we think about this? Uh, it's, it's amazing to see, I think, uh, in many ways. Um, I, I don't know. I, I've never actually interacted with him, but yeah, a lot of times we've seen a lot of these large funds 
um, come into the space and invest in like ancillary services, right? Like exchanges and, and things like Fireblocks and Anchorage and stuff like that that don't touch tokens. But I think it's, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to read too much into this, but perhaps, perhaps people, a bit, I think the biggest holdup from institutions has been the regulatory side of things. Uh, but maybe this is a positive sign in that direction, which is if you're comfortable holding tokens, um, it just, we've come a long way, right? In 2017, tokens were taboo. Like it's like, you know, we don't, right. it's blockchain, not tokens and, and, and crypto. And so now I think we've well passed that kind of narrative and, and people are more and more comfortable with tokens. Yeah. Here's why I know that this firm is going to work is because their first hire or one of their first hires is this Goldman analyst by the name of uh, Sam Purifoy. And uh, Sam had previously quit his job at Goldman to pursue a career in play to earn gaming. The reason I know this is going to work is because Sam gets the memes. Sam's moniker, his play to earn moniker was DOS Capitalist, which is obviously a nod to Karl Marx, you know, DOS Capital, where he talked about it was like, that's where he really expounded his theory of like the capitalist system, its dynamism and its, you know, tendencies towards self-destruction. And so they're hiring guys who uh, understand that the meme is the message, baby. Yeah. Yeah. So it's also crazy to just observe that like some of these funds, like they're really young. Right. And I've always thought that it's super powerful that a lot of the best investors that I met in the space are very, very young um, and or really old, but not like it's it's sort of like this gap in the middle of like 40, 50, 60, whatever you want to call these boomers. But really old people tend like I've met like really old, like oil miners, the oil like barons from Texas that immediately get Bitcoin. Um, and then like you have really young people that are obviously are attracted to the space. It's hard to ignore. And then yeah. this gap in the middle of 40s, 50s that just don't get it and continue to be really skeptical. It's just fascinating. Right. right. Some other big fun news this week. Uh, a lot of the news this week was kind of just about the money and more institutional cap ca- uh, capital coming in. Uh, Tama, uh, Tama, I thought it was Thomas, Thomas Bravo, Tama no, Bravo. No, Tama, Tama Bravo, yeah. Tama Bravo uh, is building a crypto and fintech growth investment practice. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this such a big deal? Yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, them and Insight Venture Partners, Lightspeed, I mean, th- there's a number of other, I mean, Parify, which is where I was before, like they're raising a growth fund as well. And so I think it's, um, well, two things, right? I mean, Coinbase, Coinbase really, I think, woke up a lot of these funds to say, wow, you missed Coinbase, you missed a massive value creation in the fintech space, because Coinbase is and could have been a fintech investment for a lot of these funds. And so I think, you know, for my, I was doing growth equity before kind of jumping full-time into crypto and it is a very competitive landscape. You know, you're investing in software and these multiples are, it's, it's a very competitive space. I think the average return of like a lot of these venture and growth funds is compressed dramatically where top tier funds are now like a two, 2.1 X, I think is the latest data from the MBCA. I mean, that's, you look at like the asymmetry that you can have in crypto. And I think a lot of these funds are realizing, Hey, wait a second. Whereas maybe before, you can actually deploy meaningful sums of capital into this round. Like you talk about Gemini just raised, uh, Kraken raised, FTX is raised. And so these are massive, massive rounds, relatively speaking, to support, you know, pretty large um, capital deployments. And so I think more and more people are realizing there's there's a meaningful opportunity here. Because sometimes the, the issue had been, I think a lot of people had been interested in the space, but struggled to deploy capital outside of tokens. But now I think they're seeing, wait, there's an entire ancillary services as fireblocks anchorage coinbase binance ftx so ultimately not just exchanges but service providers around the space and so i think that's what they're seeing probably and 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 i think that's why their lps are also excited about this stuff so you called the 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 picks and shovels of crypto which i i say picks and shovels on ear you know like air quotes because i just find it like you know you know what i understand yeah 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 if you ever want to convince like a 65 year old LP to invest in your fund. Just tell them that you invest in the picks and shovels of the industry. That's what it is. Right? This is a gold rush and just picks and shovels. Yeah. Yeah. We're not looking to actually dig the gold. We're looking to build the next Wells Fargo and Levi's jeans. Um, cool. So Tama Bravo, one last note on that. I just want to tell people the scope of Tama Bravo. You know, we were looking at uh, everyone in the space got really excited because Andreessen just raised a $2.5 billion fund. Tama Bravo, the scale that they operate at, they just completed a $23 billion fund raise. I think it's across three different funds, but it's $23 billion, right? That's 10x larger than Andreessen. So the scale at which these really large private equity funds uh, that now kind of own pretty much all chunks of a American capitalism uh, and American businesses, like the KKRs of the world and the Apollos of the world, 
uh, it's really tough to comprehend how actually large these things are. So yeah. in my opinion, quite a big deal they're getting into crypto. Um, uh, the next news story that I think is pretty interesting is uh, One Inch. One Inch closed a $175 million Series B. The thing that I find interesting is not how much money they raised, but that a lot of their focus with this fundraise is to serve the institutional client. This reminds me a lot of um, what like Compound is doing with the Compound Treasury product. Uh, it reminds me of what Ave is doing with Ave Arc. Um, and it just reminds me of this like narrative that permission uh, permissioned DeFi will ultimately be bigger than permissionless DeFi, whether whether or not we like it. What's your take on this story? And what's your take on specifically One Inch really trying to target this institutional crowd? Yeah, um, I've known the One Inch guys for a long, I guess since they started, like it was a hackathon in New York. Um, and they've come such a long way as, as this sort of very easy aggregator to trade, right? Um, uh, a token and find the best execution. It's like order routing and, and it does, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible what they've done. Um, and yeah, I think they, I mean, quote unquote, the next 1 trillion of assets entering DeFi will come from institutions rather than retail users and one inch would like to facilitate entry for them. And so I think like, um, a lot, as you said, you know, I think a lot of founders in the spaces in DeFi realizing, look, institutions need some handholding, um, and need some sort of sandbox kind of environment, different kind of customized environment to interact in, in DeFi. And so, um, I think if you're a friend, I think what they've seen is a lot of funds, a lot of market makers want to interact in DeFi, but it's difficult to know where to start. And, and perhaps one inch wants to be that primary landing spot. And it has been for some to be fair, but you know, as, as more and more, um, you know, traditional financial firms want to enter the space, I think they want to be well positioned to, to capture that new flows. Yep. Um, in 2017, the market basically peaked because a lot of the ICO treasuries had to sell their ETH, right? They started hiring. They said, oh shit, we need to pay our employees. We need to pay for costs and software and all this kind of stuff. Let me sell off some of my ETH. Uh, and that is what started to cause the, you know, 80, 90% downturn, uh, in the markets. Right now, the capital coming into the space is not really going into ICOs. It's what I would call that was like impermanent capital. This is more like permanent capital. Uh, it's traditional venture money. Um, let me just read off. There's some of these fundraisers. Uh, outside of the one inch fundraise, there's been $4 billion that have flowed into crypto companies in November alone. Celsius, 750 million. Forte, 725 million. Moonpay, 555 million. Gemini, 400 million. Consensus, 200 million. Mythical Games, 150 million. Sandbox, 93 million, right? Royal, 55 million. Starkware, 50 million. Grid is doing like a $500 million, uh, debt financing round from blockchain.com the list goes on and on this feels like more permanent capital to me than four years ago which was all the ico funding does this smooth out uh a cycle does this extend the bull market what, what what's your take on all those venture money coming in and and like how it applies to actually where this cycle goes yeah i mean it's uh i guess it I'm not as, it's, it's hard to time these markets, right? And, but, uh, um, cause you know, it, a lot of goes into that, but I do think that like, look, is this a super cycle? I'm not sure, but I do think that it's quite positive that finally, finally, I think traditional investors are waking up to the value that can be cre captured and created in crypto. I mean, this is not, this is not a, a, a an economy or an asset class on, on the fringes. It is actually now a very well-established asset class. It's a what now? 3 trillion plus? What's the latest? 2.8 trillion, give or take. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not chump change. And so I think ultimately, yeah, it's super positive because it's not capital that's being recycled. Ethereum swapping to another, it's, it's fresh capital from also people that, that I think have like longer timeframes to play out this technology bet because that's ultimately what it is, right? Before it was just like, okay, this is a, this is a macro hedge or whatever people are speculating. I think that inherently the fund that wants to hedge macro through Bitcoin, if they believe that, is probably more fickle and short term in nature versus a tech venture investor or growth investor that has a super long time frame or longer time frame, if you know what I mean. And so I think ultimately, I think this asset class has gone from being this is an interesting experiment, but it's largely just Bitcoin centric and then some sort of alts to wait a minute. There's just so many different dimensions here. And I've noticed it as an investor, like the number, and I think you and I talked about this, which is it feels like more and more talent is jumping into the space and there's just more 
in the opportunities. And so your batting average goes up and you're left wondering, am I doing something wrong? Am I like being, am I just, you know, your batting average shouldn't go up. But I think it's just a function of you have Bitcoin, you have Ethereum, you have all these different kind of different L1s that are supporting different use cases. And so now the range of things that you can invest in is expanded quite dramatically. And, and I think um, to your point, it, it is capital that I think is more patient and permanent to the space. And so it's, it's super net positive. I think what does that kind of put you in a territory like software as a service that's been on the super mega trend over the last 20 years <laughs> after the dot-com crash? Possibly. I mean, that's my thesis, but like everything, I mean, there are pockets of the crypto universe that I think are pretty heated. What's your thesis? What, what's that? What's that last part that you're mentioning? Well, I mean, I, I just think like, it's, it's hard to overlook the fact that like there are projects out there that have, that have no product. Um, and just a token and are trading on multiple billions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, look at this. This is Dove, Dove Metrics. Yeah, there we go. This is all the funding recently. Mm -hmm. This is seed round, seed round, seed round, seed round, series A, seed, 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 series A. Right. Yeah. It's just all of it is, uh, you know, list keeps going seed, 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 pre-series A, seed, seed, pre-seed, series A, seed, seed, mm -hmm. series A. And if you look at the types of companies, these are not really the infrastructure companies that kind of make money out of the gate. It's gaming, right? Yield farming, gaming. Uh, the trading liquidity usually is gets cash flow positive pretty quickly, but yeah, yeah. gaming, privacy, gaming, 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 metaverse, lending, borrowing. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's... I want to say like there's this idea of like what is how do you value the this ecosystem like there's circulating supply and there's fully diluted supply and so you know i tend to focus on both um a lot of these startups have like token emissions that you know if you look at fully diluted can be pretty wild um but you know i, I think um what i'm trying to say is there are pockets of that i believe in crypto today that are very overlooked and underappreciated uh, because narratives change so, and sentiment and the pendulum, the market pendulum swings to extremes. And there are others that are just, in for my in my opinion, just too crowded. And, you know, people miss a certain trade or miss a certain opportunity. And then they pile into everything that they can and really, really push that narrative to the point where it's just things are priced to uber perfection. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, give, give us the goods. Like what are the, what are the areas of the space that you're kind of excited by and looking at right now and mm -hmm. from a, from a more undervalued perspective? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll say, which is an unfair statement, but I do think that like there are certain teams in gaming that are very sensible, raising at very sensible valuations that come from web two world that are built like, th this is like X King developers. This is like the developer of Candy Crush and they're raising it like 20 million fully done. Like, and, and in my mind, human capital and you're probably in the money there. And so I look at that and then I, and then I juxtapose that with like this random game. These guys have no experience building game and then just slap a token on it. And like it's trading at like, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. And you're like, well, I just don't understand that. Um, and so I like obviously to focus on the first one, which is, I think there are, there are very good builders coming into the space. And uh, as a, as an anecdote, I mean, Axies really just proved how big this market can be because it's not necessarily a very intuitive game. Um, it's not the easiest to play. It doesn't have the best economy. There's certain things that are quite fragile, but look, I, I, I love what they've done because they've really proved how big this market can be of, as a category, play to earn, play and earn and web three gaming. Um, and now imagine a super immersive game, um, or different kinds of games. The big trend I think in gaming that will play out maybe in 12 to 18 months from now. Um, I don't really know anything, but like what I think could happen is, the games will end up launching their own banks. Um, and you'll basically Absolutely. like the, I think that's where the, uh, the composable nature of, uh, of crypto comes into play, right? Like it's so easy for Axie to basically slap a bunch of DeFi uh, protocols inside of the game to make it so that like, if you own Axie tokens, uh, you can just stake them inside again, inside of Axie. So now that like you don't, let's say you're in the Philippines and like you play Axie a bunch, you actually don't ever need a bank account, uh, nor do you need to hold your wealth in this like actually pretty volatile thing called Axie, right? You can now move into stable coins. You can get 6% uh, APY, things like that. So I think that's the big trend that's happened that, that will yeah. end up happening. Absolutely. I mean, for the first yeah. time ever, crypto is relatable to people and it's fun. And you have, I think three things. One is programmable money, you have, uh, obviously, like culture 
and the social component and gamification. You combine all the three and you have this powerful explosive combination of people come here thinking that they're going to play a game and all of a sudden they start creating a bank account and start saving and they might not even know what's going on in the back end, which is, I think, a hallmark of the best technology. You don't care how it works. It just provides like this sort of 10x plus improvement. And I think like younger generations understand this. It, the, the analogy that I like to use is WeChat, right? WeChat and China, if you ever use WeChat, WeChat started as a social platform. And then it's so pervasive, people started using it. And now it has, it does everything for you from ordering food, your car, um, streaming, your bank account, you read the news there. Uh, it pretty much everything surrounds around WeChat and this, this behemoth of an organization. So I think like ultimately a game or an NFT community like Board Apes or something like that is going to realize that and start building all these ancillary services. We're not building, just really integrating, as you said, in this very composable, interoperable world we call Web3. And I think that's really the promise here. That's where like probably DeFi really takes off again, where a lot of these games start using these DeFi protocols on, uh, on the back end. Um, mm. What's super exciting about this space, you talk about cycles, is there's already been a tremendous amount of work on the L1 front and the L2 front to support more users and also on a lot of these services that are not really sexy. I mean, DeFi is really not sexy. I mean, people don't really like to think about their bank accounts and doing this stuff. Uh, but it works. And, and it will increasingly work and service a lot of these gamers uh, and people that are being onboarded into guilds. And so I think that's what's really exciting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right, man. Let's start to wrap this up. Um, I think that's yep. kind of all the big crypto news for the week, uh, but there's definitely not going to let you off this easy. There's one other thing I want to chat with you about, okay. uh, which is nuclear energy, um, <laughs> which is this is the part of the uh, the podcast where maybe we get a little weird and where people uh, hang up on us yes. and we just talk to each other. But um, yeah, I, I saw you tweet out areas that I've been looking into that are underfunded and asymmetric. Uh microbiome sequencing, alternate forms of ed education, and some areas of crypto. But the number mm -hmm. one one was nuclear energy, specifically small reactors. A day mm -hmm. later, I saw you send out a tweet, nuclear energy being taboo baffles me when it's most clearly the answer to our energy needs. Yeah. Nuclear is one of the most promising yet misunderstood technologies, a case study of how tech can be vilified at our own expense. What in the world are you reading? What are you listening to? Where is all this coming from? <laughs> I have an unpublished blog post, really long blog post that I went super deep into nuclear. And it was, it was just really hard for me to understand, like, why is this not like the most pervasive form of energy across the world? Because, okay, I understand nuclear waste, but there's, I'll say this, a lot, nuclear as a category has been grossly underfunded. Why? Because it's so, uh, you know, it's, it's very controversial. You can't get a grant. It's been totally overlooked. And so we're relying on technology that has been quite antiquated. The, the amount of funding that's gone in this space is like, is laughable. And I just wonder, like, if we actually dedicate resources, heck, create even a DAO to fund this stuff and academ academics that are at the forefront, um, then what, I mean, how powerful could this be? Because obviously the, the, most, the most exciting technology is people tend to think of these nuclear reactors as like massive structures, right? That look like, you know, like these sort of like, you know, you, it's, and it's kind of scary, right? You look Chernobyl bubbling over. Chernobyl. And, right, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. But when you look at all this stuff, uh, there is now the, there are like nuclear reactors. There's a great Netflix documentary. We'll drop it in the notes. That is like, goes into the, some of these universities and in France, some of these places. Like there are, there are nuclear reactors the size of like your room that can power like entire universities and clusters of cities and stuff like that. And so I think to me, that's really exciting. And I don't know, like, again, it goes back to my intro. Like I've always... Just when I look at something like that, it's sort of like there's a lot of friction in the world in terms of, you know, you would think that information would flow really easily in, in, in the uber connected world that we are in today. But somehow things, certain things like crypto and nuclear have become taboo and have like these really, you know, longstanding biases. You know, for a long time, people still think crypto is like drug money and Silk Road money. And it just sort of reminds me of, of, of how quickly people have these knee-jerk reactions to stuff. And I think it's gen for nuclear, it's definitely generational, right? I mean, people grew up in the Soviet era. It's so hard to not be totally afraid about this technology because you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis and you think about Three Mile Island. But yeah, I know <laughs> I've spent more time than I care to admit. And I mean, look, I'm not a nuclear <laughs> uh, engineer by training. Uh, but if there's anyone out there listening, would love to talk to them because it is an area that I'm actively looking to invest. 
because I think yeah. it has, again, it's asymmetric. Crypto is asymmetric. I, I still believe it. I don't think you, you missed the boat on anything. None of this financial advice, but, but, but I think nuclear is in that same category and it's crazy. Yeah. It reminds me, um, well, you see Sam Altman just made a massive investment. Uh, I think it was like $500 million, uh, in Helion. Yeah. Um, no, it just reminds me, like, there's this New York power plant called uh, Indian Point Power Plant. It's about 25 miles north of New York City. It provided 25% of the city's power. 25% of all of New York City's power came from this one power plant. And Cuomo basically railed against the dangers of having this nuclear power plant operating, you know, so close so close to the city. Uh, and, and I remember, like, on his press conferences, he would always say that, you know, it's proximity to such a densely populated metropolis, defied basic sanity. Uh, and, and basically, he got a political win. They're, they shut down the plant. And what ended up happening is uh, it basically now where we get that energy is from these fossil fuel dependent plants, uh, mm-hmm. which basically all of the folks in, in Cuomo's office, bef- you know, before he was gone, obviously, uh, they're saying they're saying, oh, shit. We, we didn't actually yeah, mean to yeah. increase fossil fuel usage. So, yeah. The other thing to say is uh, it's it sort of a, an interesting tidbit, I think, which is people talk about renewables like wind. I think I think it costs more energy to create a wind turbine and cost, especially energy expended, than what it will produce in its entire lifetime. And so, like, again, narratives, right? People, oh, it's wind, it's solar. It's like, okay, solar has done huge leaps in solar tech. But still, nuclear, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, as a non-trained, you know, engineer is that it is by far the most efficient type of energy source today and the most one of the smartest guys i've ever had on the show is this guy christian angermeyer uh he started a bunch of psychedelics companies that are now public uh you know made a couple billion many times over uh really amazing german entrepreneur uh and he's just like a real pioneer in both crypto but also psychedelics and um i asked him what the most interesting thing that he's looking at is and he said nuclear so Let's get him on. <laughs> Anyways, Santiago, this has been an awesome show, my friend. Um, I'm so excited to have you as a co-host. This is gonna be this is gonna be great. This airs uh, Friday morning. Um, and for anyone listening, like honestly, just let us know what you think of it. Uh, yeah. Let us know, like, just let I don't know, just give us feedback. Let us know if you like the sections. Let us know if you like us talking about tweets, news. Want to dive deeper into Santiago's brain and talk more about nuclear? Uh, just just <laughs> let us know what you think, guys. Oh boy. No, thanks, Stacey. I'm super excited. For a long time, I've been wanting to start a podcast and, and I'm so happy to be here. And uh, yeah, hopefully our, our listeners have enjoyed this and definitely let us know if there's stuff that we, you, we should be talking about. And maybe we could throw out a tweet and say if, you know things that people want us to talk more about and we can make a point to, to do that at the end of each Let's episode. Do it. Yeah, we'll do it Friday, Friday morning. So, all right, Santiago, be well, right, my friend, friend, and I will uh, talk to you soon. Thank you. You as well. All right. Take care. 